You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. This week, I'm sitting on the Agony Aunt sofa on my own, not because I am completely friendless in the world, but because I am packed bags, literally ready to go to Malawi to spend the next two weeks working with some incredible women entrepreneurs. And I wanted to get an episode or two uploaded before I go. Plus, I wanted to talk about the subject which rather lends itself to a solo rant, and that's money. More specifically, personal money, the stuff that you pay yourself or don't pay yourself, the stuff that never seems to be left at the end of the month in the business or in your home life, and the stuff that really has an intensely negative and stressful effect on an entrepreneur, on a business person, on a founder, to the extent that I see wonderfully talented people giving up the ability to carry on with their businesses because they simply can't carry on earning nothing any longer. And I think that's a real terrible shame. So I was due to record an episode this week with an accountant. We've actually had to reschedule it. And I'm going to steal one of the questions from that episode because I think this person asking this question sums it up very nicely. They ask, at what point do I get to stop being a starving entrepreneur? I'm the founder of an angel-backed company which is growing, but not at break even yet. The business seems to have got used to me being the one who takes a low salary, pays for everything we do as a team, and I'm always been the first to give up my salary when required and the last to get rewarded. I'm actually starting to struggle financially at a personal level, which adds to my stress. But even more galling... I have multiple team members and directors who are paid significantly more than me, and I'm starting to resent them. How do I go about bringing a bit more stability and fairness to my personal situation without my investors blocking it? Well, I mean, an incredibly tough question, one that I can absolutely relate to thoroughly, and I am sure many of the listeners and many of the founders and entrepreneurs that I work with can relate to as well. One of the things I see time and time again is the founders and the co-founding team of the startup working their backsides off for nothing for years. Personally, you know, I, I go with the definition of entrepreneur as somebody that seizes opportunity and makes the most of it. And I see some of the most amazing, incredible, opportunistic entrepreneurs doing the most with the least amount. The people I'm going to work with in Malawi tomorrow um, are some amazing examples of that. I'm working with a woman who has introduced organic farming to her entire area. I'm working with a mad, crazy, cake-obsessed medical student whose cake business is now funding her through university. There's a person that has come up with a really market-appropriate sanitary product for the girls in the region, very, very clever, and a product engineer that's come up with a 
backpack made of completely recycled plastic bags with a solar panel that lights up during the day and then um, heats and lights the house in the evening. Incredible. And all being done on nothing. So I'm not kind of trying to make in any way an, an excuse that if you don't have a lot of cash behind you, you can't be an entrepreneur. Very far from it. What I do feel very strongly is this whole myth of if you're not starving, if you're not financially putting others in your company ahead of yourself the entire time, you're somehow not a good leader. I think that is, forgive my um, expression, complete and utter bullshit. I think that is a myth that has been propagated by investors, propagated by advisors, propagated by the people that are happy to come into your business and earn three times as much as you do, but uh, sure as hell don't like the idea of taking on any financial risk themselves. I think it's really, really, really wrong. And there is a hell of a lot of bad information as to what a founder or an entrepreneur should realistically expect to be paid or to take from their business. So with that rant underway, first and foremost, at what point do you, the founder, deserve, should, and actually have a responsibility to take a salary? When do you not take it? And what should that salary be pegged at? An accountant will help you with the basics, but my view is as soon as you can go three or four months paying yourself without then having to immediately stop again, do it. So if you've got a grant or investment coming in, do it. If you've got sufficient revenue, do it. Minimum wage is a start, but far better to factor in something approaching a market rate, even if you're paying yourself half the market rate or two thirds of it, if you budget it in, in time for when you scale, is at least in there in your five-year forecasts. Investors will absolutely tell you, and I, and I get why, we're not investing just so that you and your team can pay yourselves a salary. So the key thing here is pay yourself before this becomes an issue. Nobody's going to take money away from you, but they're not going to invest simply that you can pay yourself what you haven't paid yourself for two years. Get your salary in while you still can have complete control over the decision. Because once you've raised money from investors, you won't anymore. Obviously, if you've got no cash at all, or you're at the very beginning of your business and you're simply out there pitching a concept, you don't really have a business yet. So I don't see that it's appropriate that you even are paying yourself. I think about... 10 months into my last startup, when we had just received our first grant of £100,000, having won a few prizes and things like that, I started to pay myself an annual salary of, I think, about £30,000. Now, some months I didn't actually draw that because there wasn't enough money in the bank to do it. But the important thing was from an accounting perspective, from a tax perspective, that money was there. As I looked at the financial viability of my business and planned that forward, there was money being accounted for as I looked at what our costs were, as I looked at what our run rate was and the finances that we needed, which realistically represented a manager salary of sorts. 
Over the next five years of that company, that salary went up to 40, and then I think perhaps by the end, 45,000 pounds. By the end, like the person asking that question, I was probably not in the top five or six salaries being paid out in that business, and that was a terrible mistake. It was a mistake of my own making. I'm not that motivated by money. I believed that I was giving an important signal to the business and to the workforce of my company that we were all in the same boat. So there was virtually no difference between my salary, you know, we were all within, um, I would say a five to eight thousand pound variance. Um, there was very, very little difference between the lowest and the highest paid people working day to day. But what had happened was that I'd brought in expensive people. I'd brought in a CTO, I'd brought in a financial director. All of those people were earning more than me. Um, and what I failed to understand was what a bad signal that game gave off about my value to the company. I've talked in many ways in this podcast, veiled or otherwise, about how I ended up getting resigned and what a miserable experience that was. But leading up to that period, I remember being told in a very highly motivational way, on more than one occasion, when are we going to get a proper CEO? I had literally no concept what that meant. I didn't know what I was doing day to day, wrong, or or what being a proper CEO meant. And very helpfully, the people asking me to be a proper CEO didn't have a lot of clue either um, on how to direct me on that. But the interesting thing was after I resigned and after they went out to find a new CEO, the individual they were looking at who had never been a CEO before was being offered three times my salary, at least three times my salary. In undervaluing myself in terms of what I was paying myself so significantly and failing to move that as the company grew, I probably contributed very significantly to me no longer having that job because I just didn't come across as an expensive, credible asset compared to perhaps one of my other more senior figures, without meaning to get myself into trouble, who I do not think in any way was worth the money that they were being paid in any way, shape or form, in terms of competency, in terms of value they brought to the business, because they were getting the salary that a competent person in that role should command, they just were naturally taken significantly more seriously than me. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, I never asked for more money. Probably if I had, I'd have got it. I never asked. And I think the person asking this question, who said, how do I go about getting more money without my investors blocking it as well? Have you asked? (laughs) Going forward into my next business, I will not have negotiable salaries. I will have, this is what goes with this role. This is what the salaries are. And they will all be completely open and transparent. I'm not ever going to enable the situation again where this guy can ask for £3,000 more than this guy because he feels like he owes it because 
his personal expenses have gone up or whatever. That is just not happening in my next business. But the reality is in most companies, in most places that you work, men ask and men get. Women ask and it tends to get held against them. And I'm not saying that out of thin air. There's a hell of a lot of research that backs that up. But you still have to ask, especially as a founder and especially as an entrepreneur who's in difficult personal financial straits because you're going to make poor decisions, very poor decisions if you are under severe financial pressure yourself. And it's strange because as the business grows in the first like maybe year, year or two, the first period to which you hit traction and you get your, you know, everything gets expensive. You can, if times are desperate, forego your own salary. And it, it is the difference between the business surviving and it not surviving. I've put payroll on my credit card before now, and it's been the difference between the company surviving and the company not surviving. But there comes a point, I think for me, it was when our monthly costs hit about £10,000 a month. Boy, you know, they got significantly higher than that. But I think once our monthly costs got to about £10,000, it wasn't within my personal ability to solve that problem anymore. You know, that was higher than my credit card limit. I didn't have that kind of funds. If I had, I'd already plowed them into the business. And I actually found that strangely liberating. It was this moment which was like, wow, I have to now trust the business. I have to trust the people around me. I have to not keep carrying this burden of the company's finances being solely on my shoulder anymore because it's a burden too big to carry. And once you get to a point that, you know, your monthly cash expenditure is 30, 40, 50,000 pounds plus, it really sort of does become the problem of, of something other than you. If, if, if you can't pay that, you know, this is the point that you go into voluntary liquidation. This is the point that you go to the bank. This is the point that you go to your investors um, and ask for more money, all of which are horrible, horrible conversations to have, all of which I have had, but they're still strangely different and better than you sitting there going, do I plow my very last personal funds into this? Now, I had a call a few months back with a distressed entrepreneur who somebody had put in touch with me via, via the podcast who was about to remortgage their house and essentially raise an informal crowdfund from friends to get their business out of a very difficult situation. And I strongly, strongly counseled that person not to do it. I strongly counseled, and I, I genuinely don't know what decision they made. I, I strongly counseled them to wind that company up before they took any more financial burden on their friends and on themselves. Because companies live, companies die. You know? Good companies fail, bad companies succeed, good founders have things that go wrong and their companies fail despite every effort. The whole mechanics of business, on the whole, certainly in a market like the UK, is set up to let you walk away from a failed business without it being a burden around your neck for the rest of your life. 
which is why I would never get into that situation of taking on more personal debt and more money from my friends and family than, than I and they could afford to lose. And that really is an important piece of advice in my view. So we have entrepreneurs not paying themselves, not being paid enough, and then sitting years into a business going, how did it happen that I am now the lowest paid person in this company? The expectations of me haven't changed. Uh, and yet I actually do not have the personal resources to know if I can stay working in my own business. Or do I have to go and get a job? I'm sure a number of you listening to this will utterly relate to it because I can tell you I've had enough coffee with people going through this exact thing to find it maddening and saddening and just an utterly frustrating waste of potential. If I could, you know, do any one of those, what could I do to change the world to make it a better place? I would actually have founders with a valid business plan who are working in an incubator or an accelerator or other form of structured environment paid a basic salary for the first 18 months of their business by the state or by some other philanthropic mechanism because they are creating so much value, they are creating so much jobs, they are creating our economic future why the hell should they do that for free? And why the hell should they spend all their time doing that for free so that when the business is finally de-risked, investors and people who've got money, who could afford to lose it, come in, take this nice de-risked business and actually are the ones that get all the return on investment from it. That just feels fundamentally wrong to me. And you would be amazed at uh, the number of founders, early employees and startups entrepreneurs who basically go all the way through the startup process, build a successful business, either leave, get resigned, resigned, or actually take it all the way to a successful acquisition and still don't walk away with a penny. I was speaking to somebody a few weeks back who went through uh, an acqui hire where essentially their company was acquired for the team and for the IP assets that it had. They were locked in for two years and she says that everybody always thinks that she made a lot of money off it. She made absolutely nothing. They, none of that team made a penny. They just got their salaries paid for the next two years because that's the position they were in. And you, you, you hear a lot about these great acquisitions and people going out with a bang, um, but the economic reality for a lot of the people in that, even some of the early stage angels, you know, who've also taken on their fair of share of the risk, walk away with absolutely nothing at the end of that because they get so diluted out or um, preferenced out. We've got the risk stacked against the founders in so many ways. The least you can do to owe it to yourself is pay yourself enough to survive because you're no good to anybody if you're burned out and broke. The second part of this is that I really want to talk about is, okay, what happens though when it all goes wrong? How do you fund your startup through desperate times? And everything you read about fundraising, everything you read about financial planning assumes you have time. 
Like it's literally, don't raise money when you need it. Start at least six to nine months before you're going to run out of money. Speak to your accountant, you know, six months before you've got problems. Do all of these things. And I get why. And believe me, yes, I've done it those ways. But the reality is when you're really screwed, it comes up on you like a tidal wave at the last minute. And unfortunately, the last thing you have is a time machine where you can go back six months and start planning nicely for it. If you've got cash to give you six months to think about it, you're already in a position of luxury and choice. And you're already in the place where you can think about the logistics of getting money in appropriate ways, whether that's uh, investment, whether that's crowdfunding, whether that's bank, whether that's by changing your pricing, whether that's by changing your payment terms um, to get cash in faster. What the reality that I have experienced is this gut-wrenching panic where what you have left is days or weeks of money and there are no good choices. So Ben Horowitz writes about this um, in The Hard Things About Hard Things, which I absolutely love. And it's got a blog post on it called um, What's the Most Difficult CEO Skill? Managing Your Own Psychology. Um, and it has this great quote, which is something along the lines of like, the job of a CEO is to spend their time choosing between horrible and cataclysmic choices. But the point he's making is that a lot of the time there are no good choices. And you still have to do something. At the most stressful times, at the most desperate times, there are no good choices. There are no good choices that let you sleep well. There are no good choices where you get to save everybody's job. There may not even be good choices where you get to save your company. It's horrible. It feels like hell. But that is the reality of it. And however desperate it feels at the time... I can say this with the benefit of, of a year of relative calm since sort of parting the way with my last company is however terrible it feels at the time, eventually it feels better. You move on eventually to the next one. But what are your choices when you're staring at the cliff? And I think that you have to be really, really brutally honest with yourself, with your team, but particularly with yourself, you have to ask yourself one question. Do I really have a business? Is pushing on really worth the cost? So what I mean by this is, look, if we can fix this, if we pay the price to get the money, whatever that is, whether that's giving up your own stake in the company, whether that's getting into debt, whether that's paying through the nose for short-term loans or doubling down with investors who basically wipe out the first set of investors in the company, people that might be your friends. If you're going to do that, you need to know the business is worth saving. What I mean by is it worth saving? Do you really have a business? Do you have product market fit? Do the economics, the unit economics of the business make sense when this short-term financial problem goes away? Can you actually sell enough of what you need to sell for this business to be viable? Are there enough people in the world willing to buy it for this business to be viable? Are you really the people to deliver on this? Or you know what? Has some better qualified fast follower come behind you 
and is rightly going to take up the market, which is hellish, which is really disappointing, but happens all the time. Only if you, in complete harsh, cold reality, can justify to yourself and to your most sceptical friend and relative that the unit economics of your business make fundamental sense and if it survives, it will thrive. Only in those situations is it worth actually going into desperation funding mode. And I use desperation funding as a term, essentially as a contrast to planned funding. Now it's all about your in- your immediate short-term goal. It's not about the big picture anymore. Your slide deck that you wrote six months ago when you were planning to do that million pound raise that never panned out, that is not your tool for going into desperation funding. It really isn't going to help you. It's just going to make you run out of money faster. You need to know whether you have got a realistic chance of raising enough money as desperation funding to make a drop of difference. If your payroll is now at £50,000 a month, the maximum you're likely to be able to remotely get as a bank loan, if you can get one at all, is in the 20 to 30k range. That isn't going to touch the sides. It's not going to let you survive even another month. I wouldn't take that bank loan unless I knew I'd got some other form of money coming in. So I once took a £25,000 loan uh, in exactly that position, actually, about a 50k payroll, some invoices out, but, you know, tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands. But the reason that I took uh, that loan, even though it didn't really touch the sides, is it bought me about... It bought me about six weeks and I knew that in that six weeks I had got another grant coming in. I'd got another £100,000 grant coming in and I had got, I think, a six-month invoice coming in for a client. So the £25,000 loan on its own didn't fix the problem, but in combination of being a short-term gap because other finance was coming in, it worked. Now, this is the point where bankers get angry with me and go, you should have tried invoice financing or factoring. Invoice financing, you'll hear this mentioned quite often. This That's a way where you can basically sell your unpaid invoices to the bank or to a factor who then gives you maybe 75% of the value of the invoice, 70 to 75% of the value of the invoice, and then they go away and collect the debt. The problem is that doesn't work with the type of business I had. If you're a SaaS business, you're selling software, you're selling IP, invoice financing is not available to you. If you sell a physical product, if you sell kettles and you've got a contract for a thousand kettles and the kettles are made, you're just waiting for somebody to pay, invoicing finance will work there because the bank know that the kettles exist and they know that the clients exist there's very, very little risk and you can always not deliver the kettles if you don't get paid. Whereas software, it just doesn't work like that. So invoice financing often touted as the great savior when you've got grants or you've got invoices coming up doesn't work for a lot of businesses. Just be wary of that. 
No, I was in desperation finance mode and I was calling around left, right and centre to try to get invoice financing, couldn't get it. I also tried, whilst I was in the mode of desperation funding, to get crowdfunded loans. I think there's in the UK there's um, funding circle and bits and pieces like that. Again, we weren't eligible because you needed to be a more established business that had been profitable for two to three years to get access to that. Then, really, what's your options? Number one, and don't hit me for this, sell something, sell anything. This is where you have got to put all of your energy into getting cash in in any way, shape or form as a desperate last resort. Brutal debt collection. If anybody owes you money, every single person in your company needs to be on the phone handing that money in. All cash in the bank now. Any generous, fuzzy stuff that was sitting around that you'd been letting pass, you have to call in all money that you can and then you have to sell literally anything. I don't care, frankly, if it's the furniture on eBay or if you're loaning your developers out. When I first started my last business, my first two developers, I part bought from a company that was in desperate funding situation. They couldn't afford to keep all of their staff on. They would have had to let them go. I couldn't afford to employ them full time. So basically we came into an agreement where I bought two days of a week of their development team's capacity and it actually worked really well. And that was them doing, looking around and going, what can we sell? Hell, we're not selling enough product. We can't sell the furniture yet. We'll sell our people. That might be an option. And it sounds strange it is actually doable and it's not unprecedented. This is where you make decisions that come back to bite you on the backside later. I made some decisions whereby we sold consultancy and we sold services that were outside of our core, out of financial desperation. Strategically, it was a mistake because when that period of desperation was passed, our product offering was muddied, our strategy was muddied. It was very, very difficult with the, with people that I had around me as as a board to go, we're not going to do that anymore, when actually it had, some, it had made money. It had made us money that filled a desperation gap, but wasn't the long-term strategy. Um, and it had implications down the line, but it had let us survive another day. So debt, advances, can anybody that you know, any of your clients pay early, lend you money? Can you change your fund, your payment terms? I think the big, big one is then you come into the zone of asking for favors. So the first place to ask for favors in terms of, please, can I have an emergency loan, a director's loan? Emergency investment is your existing board and your existing investors. If you have a board of directors and existing investors, your financial problems are their financial problems. In the case of the board of directors, quite literally, because they're on the hook as well as you. So if you do believe the business is viable, once you've been brutally honest with yourself and they believe the business is viable, this is the first place to look. Are they able to lend into the company as a director's loan and do so willingly? Are they able to reinvest? They may choose this moment to twist the knife in and double down on the terms. But, you know, that's where all your previous choices around uh, investors and directors will come back to haunt or help you. 
the next place, the wider entrepreneurial community, the philanthropic and pay it forward ask. If there are people in your life who like you and believe in you, chances are there are people willing to help you survive this. As long as you ask them, that your ask is appropriate to the scale of their personal means and goodwill to actually be able to help you and that you do absolutely everything within your power not to let them down, but to still ensure that they fully understand that there is a risk. As much as you need cash, what do you really need the cash for? Can you barter? Do you need equipment? Is there something that you can, they can help you with in kind? For example, a former client of mine once paid for me to fly to New York to go and pitch at a big competition. I simply did not have the money in the company to, to pay for that. They bought me a ticket to go do that opportunity. I asked. I asked very directly and I felt pathetic and a bit ashamed for asking, but they were happy and willing to help me and we actually now have a really good, even better relationship than we ever have and I I look at that as a supportive thing. You randomly asking me for 10 grand via LinkedIn is not going to cut it, I'm afraid. Sorry to let you down, but making an important deal happen for somebody that who I trust and that has consistently impressed me, taking some of the stuff over like I am to Malawi this week, absolutely, I can make that work. You do not have time to do formal fundraising. Don't plan a crowdfund. Don't try a grant application. Don't pin all your hopes on a pitch competition. Don't hire anybody, even a silver-tongued hotshot salesperson with a legendary black book who says that they can solve all your problems in life. Don't go there. And don't spend the last of your cash on a lottery ticket or plan a robbery or do any other daft, illegal, harmful things. That's a very, very bad idea. And once you are technically trading insolvently, meaning that you cannot pay and you know you cannot pay all the debts that your business has, you have to go into a process of voluntary liquidation. Everything I'm talking about here is those tough, tough choices you make in the days and weeks running up to whether you make that decision or not. I am not a believer in never give up. I know that might sound like I am weak and pathetic and a loser and roll over easily, but what I mean is I'm not a believer in never give up at any cost. I think that's really inefficient and a waste of potential and actually a massively dispiriting and dehumanizing thing to impose on yourself and other people when everybody but you knows it's over. Sometimes you have to move on. It's not fair, but not every great idea makes a great business um, and maybe your next one will be better. So only get into this zone of desperation funding if you've been brutally honest with yourself first. If you're the only person that can see your vision, it's not a vision, it's a delusion. I've actually uh, written a bit more about this in a blog post called Funding Your Startup in Desperate Times, which you will find at vickybrock.com slash blog. Plenty of us have been there and plenty of us have survived to tell the tale. The thing that I love about the broader entrepreneurial community is that there is always somebody willing to have a coffee uh, and share their war stories. 
there's always somebody who's been there and even if they didn't survive it, you know, even if the company went down, they're willing to share what they'd do differently next time. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll succeed, but hopefully it will give you the courage and energy and sheer stamina to, to live to fight it all again and to make sure that next time you're in a position to draw an appropriate salary and um, surround yourself with appropriate people paid the appropriate amount. Rant over for this strange little monologue of an episode. As I say, I am off to Malawi very shortly. I'm going to record some episodes while I'm over there. As ever, you can subscribe, sign up, submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.